morning. Our scripture reading this morning is Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may retain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, worship team. Morning harvest. It's so good to see everybody here this morning. Great time of worship. We're going to continue our study in the book of Philippians this morning. I just want to ask a couple questions as we kick things off here. First of all, why do people spend great amounts of time and money looking for Mr. or Mrs. Wright. <laughs> Amen. You know, I read this week that there are over 2,500 dating websites. Why do so many movies or novels include romance as a part of the overall story? I mean, almost all of them do. Why do people spend lives pursuing their dreams, pursuing their goals, pursuing this job or that skill or that talent? Why are there so many cults or gangs? There's many reasons for these things, of course, but I think one of the core reasons that people pursue so many things is that they want to be happy. I think if you were to talk to anybody and ask them why they're pursuing this, that, or the other, I think at the core of that would be, I want to be happy. People want to be happy. Is that a bad thing? No. But people are looking for happiness in so many places. And Paul says in our passage this morning, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Up until now in our study, Paul has been sharing his joy. He's been sharing what he's joyful about. You may remember this from chapter 1, verse 4, when he says, I make my prayers with joy. You might remember from 118, he says, I rejoice in pretense or in truth that Christ is proclaimed. You might remember from 119 that he says, I will rejoice because I know this imprisonment will turn out for my deliverance. He says in chapter 2, even if I am to be poured out in ministry along with you, I rejoice. And then he challenges them in the middle of chapter 2. He says, likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. 
We get to chapter 3, and he opens with this. Finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. From chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through chapter 2, we have been driven by one imperative, and that imperative is, let your lives be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now he's transitioning. That word finally right there, that doesn't mean, well, I'm about to wrap things up, because he goes on for two more chapters. It's actually a word that that signifies there's a transition coming. We've talked about living a life worthy. We've talked about how that looks through unity. We've talked about all that through chapter 2. Now we're going to change directions a little bit. There's another topic that Paul wants to talk to them about. And he starts by saying, rejoice in the Lord. And he's going to spend the rest of chapter 3 unpacking what that looks like. How do we rejoice in the Lord? We're going to take two sermons to unpack what he's talking about here. This morning, we're going to look at the joy of knowing Christ. And then next time, we'll look at the joy of striving for Christ. So let's look at the joy of knowing Christ. Here's your first point this morning. Joy comes from rejecting bad theology. Joy comes from rejecting bad theology. How do we rejoice in the Lord? rejecting bad theology. He says, of course, in verse 1 of chapter 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. What's he talking about there? Well, like I said, he's introducing a new topic, but it's not a topic that he's never talked to them about before. He's sharing with something that he said beforehand. He said, I'm going to bring up a new topic in my letter, but it's something you've heard me say before. And it's safe for you. Do you see that word safe? That means in your best interest. He said, I have something that I want to share with you. I've shared this before, but I'm going to do it again because it's for your own good. What did he share before? And he probably shared this when he was with the Philippians, when he was planting the church or maybe during a visit. This is probably what he's referring to. When I was with you that time, I shared this, but I'm going to share it again, and I'm going to give you a warning. What's the warning, Paul? It's about false teachers. It's about bad theology. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, that is a three-fold lookout. Do you see that? Look out, look out, look out. He wants to get their attention. And he's not talking about three different types of people to look out for. He's talking about one type of people. He's talking about looking out for people who are delivering bad theology. Now, during Paul's ministry, he was always dealing with false teachers. He was always trying to correct false teaching. He was always warning churches. And there's a particular group that it seems like he's, he's emphasizing here. There's a particular group of Jews in his day called the Judaizers, And their goal was to Judaize the Gentiles. They wanted, they they believed that accepting Christ was fine, nothing wrong with that, but it wasn't enough. Accepting Christ was incomplete. They believed that Christians needed to observe certain ceremonies from the Mosaic law, specifically circumcision. They believed that you had to be circumcised to be saved. In fact, Paul wrote the entire book of Galatians combating that idea. Now, you might be wondering, why in the world would anyone promote something like circumcision as needs for salvation? Good question. Circumcision was a sign of God's covenant with Israel that went all the way back to Abraham. 
In Leviticus 12, 3, God commands that all Jewish boys should be circumcised on the eighth day after their birth. Any Jewish male that was uncircumcised was actually to be ostracized from Israel. It was a big deal in the Old Testament because it was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. But when Christ came, the new covenant, he changed all that. Gentiles are welcome now under the new covenant simply by faith in Christ. In fact, all people come to salvation by faith in Christ. It's interesting, this, this, this issue of circumcision and the Judaizers and trying to make Gentiles like Jews was huge in the first century. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, the apostles get together to talk about this because it's been such an issue. It's been such an issue throughout the church. The church has been, of course, birthed. The church is being planted everywhere. And there's some who are teaching, like Paul, that are teaching the truth about faith in Jesus Christ. But there are some that said, yes, but we need to add the law to it. We need to add circumcision. We need to add all this. So in Acts chapter 15, there's finally this council at Jerusalem. Paul is there. Peter is there. Barnabas is there. Pillars of the faith. And they meet to discuss this issue that the Judaizers are spreading throughout all the church. And at the end of this council, it was agreed by the pillars of the faith, that circumcision was not necessary for salvation. In fact, in Galatians chapter 2, Paul writes this. You can see this on the screen. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield to submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. In other words, we concluded that circumcision was unnecessary for salvation. We concluded it was unnecessary. The idea that circumcision was a necessity for salvation would be similar to somebody today claiming baptism is necessary for salvation. Baptism, we've taught this here before, is an outward expression of an inward work. Circumcision is meaningless without an inward change. It was the sign of a covenant that God had made with Abraham, but it was about an internal change. And the truth is, baptism is the same way. It's meaningless without internal change. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant of God, and baptism is a sign of the work of Christ that he has done in us. But neither activity saves. So there was no need for it. The problem was, this group of Jews, the Judaizers, didn't give up. They kept going and spreading this lie that Christ wasn't enough. So we get to Philippians chapter 3. And to be honest with you, there's no historical evidence that the Judaizers actually went to Philippi. But Paul was always warning the churches about false teaching and false doctrine. So he says, back to verse 2, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Beware of false teachers is what he's saying. And he calls them, do you see it in the text? He calls them dogs. I don't know if you know this, but that's not a nice thing to say to somebody. It was an insult. And this is not a reference, by the way, to the pets that we keep in our home. They had pets back then, some of them. But this was actually a reference to wild scavengers that would eat garbage. He compares those who want to push circumcision as a means of salvation to unclean and immoral beasts. Then he goes on to write, verse 3, 
For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We don't need that ritual because we are the circumcision. We, the church, are the circumcision. We have the inward cleansing of Jesus Christ. We have been changed internally by the blood of Jesus. We have the sign. We have the mark of Jesus working in us. And we put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we believe there is nothing good in the flesh. There is no way that the flesh can do anything, any kind of ritual, any kind of activity to gain salvation. In fact, John 6.63 reads like this. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. I cannot earn my salvation through good works or religious rituals. Any activity, no matter how religious or moral it may seem, cannot save you. If there is anything, let me challenge you here, if there is anything that tempts you to doubt that Christ is sufficient, cast that away. If there is anything that tempts you to think you need Jesus and, throw that away. In fact, let me, let me, let me ask you this. Just, just fill the blank in your mind. All I need is Jesus and Jesus. I like that. That's a good one. All I need is Jesus and nothing. Romans 10.9 says this, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's it. Joy comes from rejecting bad theology. We reject bad theology that comes in like this. Anything that tries to tell us you need this or that added to Jesus for your salvation, we reject that and joy comes in rejecting bad theology because God blesses it when we believe the truth. So you might be looking at me and you might be thinking, you know, this is what I've grown up with. You're not telling me anything new. I have grown up believing in Christ. I have grown up knowing Christ. And I've grown up believing that all it takes is Christ for salvation. You're not teaching me anything new. Okay. Awesome. Praise the Lord. But here's the problem. We're still stuck in the flesh until Christ comes back or until we depart and be with him. We're still stuck in the flesh, so we keep going back to fleshly ways. We do. Look at verse 4. Paul, Paul continues to write, he says, Though I myself have some reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, what's he doing here? He's springing board off this idea of putting no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh, but if anyone was to put confidence in the flesh, Paul is the biggest candidate. He is the greatest candidate. If, if the flesh could save it all, Paul is the greatest candidate for that. Why? Paul says, you think you're a good person? You think you have, it to, what it you have what it takes to earn your salvation? You've got nothing on me. You've got nothing on me. Look what Paul, this, this, this is Paul's fleshly resume, you might say. Let's break it down. Look at verse 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. We've already talked about that. The Abrahamic covenant. He underwent the ritual of circumcision. He says, of the people of Israel. He says, of all the nations on earth. It was the Jews who were God's chosen people. I'm a part of, the, of Israel. But it goes further than that. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, a significant tribe, 
Benjamin was a significant tribe. Benjamin was the last son of Jacob, you might remember, and he was the only son to be born on the promised land. On top of that, Benjamin and Judah were the only two tribes faithful to the Davidic covenant. Do you remember when the kingdom separated, when Solomon's son Rehoboam messed that whole thing up? Judah and Benjamin were the only two tribes that remained faithful to the Davidic dynasty. Also, something interesting, Paul knew which tribe he belonged to. And by the first century, there had been so much intermarriage that not all Jews actually remembered or knew what their ancestry was. They didn't know exactly which tribe they belonged to. So it was significant that he even knew. Then he goes on to say, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What does that mean? It, it's likely, it likely means that he held to the Orthodox Jewish culture and language. Because you see, many Jews were dispersed during this time. They were dispersed among other nations, and many Jews had forsaken the old ways. But Paul says, no, 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 I've kept the culture. I've kept the old ways. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, I'm a Pharisee. We know all about the Pharisees, don't we? Jesus and the Pharisees did not get along. Who was a Pharisee? John MacArthur actually writes this concerning Pharisees. You can read this on the screen. He says, to become a Pharisee was to reach the highest level in devout legalistic Judaism. So what's he saying? He said, I'm at the top. I am a religious hero. Verse 6, he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. The Jews saw zeal in two different ways. One, zeal was love for God. And two, zeal was hate whatever offends God. Your zeal was your, your depth of love for God and your depth of hate for whatever offends God. Now, that's actually pretty good, isn't it? I think that's actually pretty good. That's what we should strive for, love for God and hate what, what opposes God or what offends God. But you see, we can confuse what opposes God. And if we get that confused, then we could be opposing something that maybe God's not opposing. And that's what happened with Paul. His zeal was misplaced so that he thought opposing God meant destroy the church. So he was very zealous, but his zeal was misplaced. And lastly, he writes, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, he's not meaning that he was sinless. He's not saying I was sinless. That's not what he means there. What he means is he was a model Jewish citizen. He was the poster boy for the Jews. In the first century, you were considered a good Jew if you obeyed the law, and then when you sinned, offer a sacrifice. That's all you got to do. Obey the law. When you sin, offer a sacrifice. And Paul's like, I was, I was blameless because I followed that pattern. Now, I told you, that's Paul's fleshly resume. And according to the flesh, that's impressive. That's very, very impressive. You see what he's doing? He's paring down. He's narrowing down everyone on the earth to show that he, according to the law of Moses, he was a candidate for earning salvation. He had every advantage to earn salvation by works. He was better off than Mother Teresa. What are we getting at? Here's your second point. Joy comes from resisting the temptation to be my own savior. Joy comes from resisting the temptation to be my own savior. 
In Paul's mind, before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, he was doing all the right things to earn his salvation. In other words, he was his own savior. And that's the problem with following religious patterns. If you make, you make yourself your own savior when you follow some sort of religious pattern. If I just do A, B, C, God will be happy with me. That's not dependence on God. That's dependence on self. Now, here's the thing. I know most of you in this room, and I doubt that you are striving to earn your own salvation You understand that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But our problem, like I mentioned earlier, our problem comes in because we go back to the flesh instead of relying on the Spirit for things like victory over temptation or breaking the chains of sin in our life or thinking I need to do ABC to make God happy with me. What's happening when we think like that? We're trying to be our own Savior may even think, I need Jesus for justification, but not necessarily for sanctification. Now, maybe we don't say that or think those words, but we often act like that. We often act like, yes, I needed Jesus for justification, but not necessarily for my sanctification. Tim Keller writes this. You can see this on the screen. There are two ways to be your own Savior and Lord. One is by breaking all the moral laws and setting your own course, and one is by keeping all the moral laws and being very, very good. When we strive to keep God's law in our own strength, we're actually trying to be our own Savior. We're depending on self. We're not depending on Christ. We're saying, look at me. I'm a good little Christian boy. I'm a good little Christian girl. Now, Some of you are probably thinking, wait a minute, aren't we supposed to keep God's word? Aren't we supposed to obey God? Didn't you challenge us a few weeks ago to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? Yes, I did. But you see, that fear and trembling, as you might remember, that was the correct motive. You see, you can follow all of God's word. You can be a pretty good person and still be wrong if you're depending on your works. And we don't even know we're doing it sometimes. That's how deceptive our own hearts can be. Our own hearts are so deceptive, we can actually be doing the right things with a prideful, self-centered motive. Not unlike the the people that Paul mentioned in Philippians 1 who proclaimed the gospel with selfish gain. Now, where did this come from? Think back to the garden. What was Eve tempted with? It wasn't to eat fruit. Sure, that was the object of her temptation, but it wasn't to eat the fruit. That wasn't the bottom, the heart level of her temptation. The heart level of her temptation came when the serpent said this, you will be like God. That was the temptation. You will be like God. The temptation was Eve wanted to be her own God. And down in the depths of every human heart, That lies the desire to be our own God. And that can drive us to obedience, even obedience to the Bible, just so we can look good in God's eyes. 
It's not obedience because we love God. It's obedience because we're trying to make ourselves pleasing to him. But don't you see, there's no joy in that. There is only toil and pain and weariness because if I'm constantly trying to do the right thing to make God happy with me, then I can never know for sure if he is happy with me. So then I'm constantly spinning my wheels. But you see, the gospel isn't me working hard to be acceptable to God. The gospel is God has already done everything I need to be acceptable to him. I just embrace it by faith. And there is joy in that. Joy comes from rejecting bad theology. Joy comes from resisting the temptation to be my own savior. And thirdly, joy comes from embracing a relationship with Jesus. Joy comes from embracing a relationship with Jesus. Look at verse 7 with me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Paul says that everything that he gained from a righteous, quote-unquote, life, he counts as loss. It's nothing. All his efforts to achieve God's favor came to absolutely nothing. All his status, his position, his advantages due to his birth, his heritage, everything was completely worthless. Why? Because, number one, it doesn't save. But, number two, it doesn't compare to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ the ultimate worth of knowing Christ. Now that word knowing, in the Greek, that's not a verb. It's a noun. It's the word gnosis, and it means knowledge or uh, the content of what is known, or it could refer to experiential knowledge. He's saying the knowledge of Christ is of greater worth than all my human effort, but he's not meaning to know facts about Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying, I know facts, all these things about Jesus. Recently, I was in an airport, and uh, I have a mask that I wear that says, ask me about Jesus. And there was a flight attendant who looked at me, and he asked, what am I supposed to ask you about Jesus? And I was able to ask him, well, do you know Jesus? And he replied, I know of Jesus. You see, he had facts about Jesus. I have no doubt this man probably studied, maybe he'd even gone to church, but he didn't know Jesus. He didn't have experiential knowledge like Paul's writing about here. Paul's saying here, I have a deep experiential knowledge of Jesus Christ. In other words, I have a relationship with him. I have a relationship with him. There was a time that I knew of my wife. 
She wasn't my wife at that time. I knew of her. At that point, she was just the cute girl in class. But friendship, dating, and eventually marriage has led me to deeply know her. I can tell you what makes her smile. I can tell you what she enjoys. I can tell you what irritates her. I can really tell you that. I can tell you what she's passionate about. But you know, even deeper than that, it's not just that I know these things about her. I can tell you that what she and I have experienced together in life have knit our hearts. We have experiential knowledge so that I know my wife, I just don't know of my wife. And that's how Paul is describing what he has in Christ. He says, I'm no longer trying to please a dispassionate God. I am in a deep, loving, experiential relationship with God. What Paul has with God is so precious that he counts all human effort to be absolutely worthless. He calls it rubbish. That word rubbish could mean kitchen scraps or garbage. It often referred to the stuff that was thrown to the dogs. Do you hear the irony in that? Verse 2, he called the false teachers dogs. And now he gets to this point and he says that all human effort, which is what the false teachers are preaching, is nothing but rubbish thrown to the dogs. In other words, they're just chasing all that they deserve. All that human achievement to try to please God is just absolute rubbish because it doesn't save and it's not compared to knowing Christ. Paul had spent his early life striving for a righteousness that was impossible to gain through human effort. It can only be gained through faith in Jesus Christ. True righteousness isn't possible when you and I try to please God. It's only possible by faith in Christ. What does it take to get a relationship with God? Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It just takes a response in faith. Now, this takes humility. It really takes humility to say that all my human effort is nothing. And I said before, we want to be our own savior, but to truly have a relationship with Christ, we've got to give that up. We've got to be willing to say, everything I try to do to please God is worthless. It's only by faith in Christ that I gain what my heart truly wants. A relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, when I was young, sure, just briefly about myself, um, I would read the Bible, and I loved the histories. I loved the histories as I read the Bible. And I remember that I would read about how Moses talked with God face-to-face as a man talks with his friend. I remember reading how David was called a man after God's own heart. And I remember, I remember longing for that. I remember even praying, God, this is what I want. And little did I know at the time that that's exactly what God offered Just as he had a relationship with Moses and with David, he offers a relationship with us, but it's even better than their relationship because we're under the covenant of Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you this. You might be sitting there wondering, what in the world is he talking about? So I would ask you, do you know Jesus Christ or do you know of Jesus Christ? Do you have a relationship with him? Let me challenge you, you can embrace Jesus Christ right now. 
in the quietness of your own heart. You can embrace him by faith. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't earn his approval. Anything that you're trying to do to make God happy with you or to be a good person or to live a good life is, as Paul says, it's, it's rubbish. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And if you will, as we said, confess your sins and embrace them by faith, you will be saved. And I encourage you, I don't just encourage you, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that. And if you need information or you want to talk that through, or maybe you just, in the, just now you did that in the quietness of your own heart, would you come talk to one of us? One of the elders will be standing up here at the front at the end of the service. If you have any questions, we're here. We love you. Well, what about those who've already embraced Christ? You might say, that's great, but what about me? I've embraced Christ already. What's in here for me? Look at verse 10. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why'd you do it, Paul? Why did you suffer the loss of all things? Why do you call it rubbish? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What does Paul want? He wants to know Christ. We've talked about that. He wants that relationship. But do you see that phrase in there? He wants to know the power of his resurrection. Why? What does that mean? Paul wants to know the power of Jesus' resurrection because Jesus conquered our greatest threat. Death is the greatest enemy of our physical life. You think about what we can accomplish as humans. We can accomplish a lot, can we not? I mean, we've built nations all around the globe. We've advanced technologically beyond any in our previous generation. We know more about the physical creation than anyone has ever known in history. We have built structures that are astounding. We have collections of human art that blow the mind. Doctors can cure diseases and repair the human body like never before. But we can't do anything about death nothing once death claims us that's it but Jesus defeated death Jesus conquered our greatest threat Jesus did what no one has ever done or ever will do again He conquered our greatest threat so that Paul writes, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? So why does Paul want to know this power? Because if Jesus conquered our greatest threat, then there's nothing he can't do in our life. Do you struggle? Do you have difficulties? Do you have temptations? Do you have sins? Do you have fears? Do you have anxieties? If he conquered death, there's nothing he can't handle in your life. There are areas in my life that I do not have the power to conquer but he does.
There are areas in your life that you don't have the power to conquer. But he does. If Jesus can defeat death, he can handle your struggles and my struggles and not break a sweat. And that's why Paul wants to know the power of his resurrection. He also wants, he says, he wants to share in his sufferings. What does that mean? Share in his sufferings. Whatever struggle, trial, temptation, worry, anxiety, fear, you can face and I can face because Christ's power lives in us. And when we suffer, we have a companion in our suffering. We have a companion in our suffering because Christ suffered to the degree that we cannot imagine. Christ suffered to the degree that we cannot imagine. I will never suffer in all my sufferings, and I don't want to minimize anyone's suffering here. I am not trying to say that your sufferings aren't worth considering. They are. They're important. They're big, and they mean something to Jesus. But what I'm saying is this. No one in this room has ever suffered to the degree that Jesus suffered, even if, even if we were to receive the same punishment that he did, even if we were to receive the same lashings, even if we were to be nailed to a cross, even if we were to have received the thorns and the woods, all of it, we still would not receive the same level of suffering that he did because he faced the wrath of God. And by faith in Christ, that's something I will never face. And that's something you will never face. And because we have such a great high priest who has suffered greater than we ever will, we have a companion in our suffering. And that's what Paul's talking about. That I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see that in verse 11? Sounds a little funny in English. It almost sounds like he's saying, I'm trying to gain the resurrection from the dead, but he can't be saying that because he spent the whole chapter talking about how that can't be done. So what does it mean? Well, this is a little bit debated, but he's not talking about achieving the resurrection through human effort. What he's likely saying here is that one way or another, whether I die and go to heaven or whether Christ comes back and my body is transformed, I will attain this resurrection. That's what he's saying there. My faith in Christ gives me power, a companion in my suffering, and will lead to my resurrection. And that's why there's joy in having a relationship with Jesus. That's also why we need this message. We need this gospel. We need to go back to this truth every single day of who Jesus is and what he did for us. Through Christ, we have the power of his resurrection, the promise of his comfort, and a hope for eternity. What are we looking for in life? Many people would say we're looking for happiness. But how do we really find it? through romance, through tracing my dreams, through trying to do all I can to make God happy. No. It's by knowing Christ. 
It's by rejoicing in the Lord. And how do I do that? I reject bad theology. I resist the temptation to be my own savior. And I embrace a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are so good. You've given us everything that we need. We sang about it in a song this morning, found in you. Every victory is found in you. All we want is found in you. Lord, get down to our heart. Get down to the level that still looks for ways to be our own savior. Reveal that truth to each of us and help us repent of that and embrace you even deeper. Help us to know the power of your resurrection. Help us to embrace you as our comforter in our suffering. Help us to look forward to the hope that we have in you. We love you, Jesus. We praise you and give you thanks in your awesome and powerful name.